please turn in your Bibles with me to our first passage, Luke 19, 28 through 40, and follow along as I read aloud. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So these who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And he said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he, they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And now turn to chapter 23, verses 13 through 25. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning is Palm Sunday, and so this morning, some 2,000 years ago, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. People in the crowds shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was on Sunday. But we also know that just a few days later on Friday, many of those same people would move from Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucify. 
And so our purpose this morning is to try to answer the question, why? What would cause the people to turn on him? Which leads to the second question, which is this, who is Jesus? Or coming at it from another direction, who did they want him to be? And I got to tell you up front, there's a lot of application here for us because we live in this realm that I tend to call Texas Christianity, and within Texas Christianity, there's a lot of teaching about Jesus who is in our image, but we want to worship the Jesus of the Bible. And so I invite you, if you're not already there, to turn with me to Luke chapter 19, let you know up front that normally we focus on a verse-by-verse exposition of the text, and we will do a little bit of that at the beginning, but we're also going to use this text as a jumping-off point, bring in passages from all over the Gospel of Luke to get down to the nub of the question, who is Jesus? So look with me at Luke 19, starting in verse 28. Luke transitions to this passage, what we often refer to as the triumphal entry, by saying after he said these things, you say, what's he talking about? And if you look, the immediate context is after he had spoken the parable of the ten minus, but I think we've got to go back even further because all of this context is building. If you are reading through the gospel of Luke from beginning to end, you might recall that in Luke 9.51, you have this very, very important verse along the way, a turning point in the gospel of Luke. There, Luke tells us that Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. In other words, he was on a mission. He was heading to the cross. And in point of fact, from that time on, he predicts his own death three times. In just a chapter before, in 18, verse 31 through 34, Jesus told them what was about to happen. He predicts his death for the third time, though the disciples don't understand it. In chapter 19, he goes to the house of Zacchaeus, which is one of the many instances where we see the Jewish people take issue with him as he ministers to those they hate. Right before this event, the parable of the ten minas ends on the note of judgment upon all who don't submit to King Jesus. So, So that's how Luke brings us into this narrative of the triumphal entry. If we step back even a touch further and go outside of Luke, the Gospel of John helps us even more when we think about the context. Because in the Gospel of John, we learn that right before the triumphal entry, you've got this amazing miracle. Right before the triumphal entry, you have the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and the crowds are absolutely amazed by what's just happened, and the, and the Jewish leaders are scrambling, and they have this little powwow, and they say, if he goes on like this, the Romans are going to come and take our nation from us. We, we can't let this happen. And that's where we pick it up this morning. Here we see Jesus' final entrance into Jerusalem. And the first thing that you see is that he's prearranged his entrance, either by way of going ahead and working out the details or doing so supernaturally. Now you see that in verses 29 to 34 when he, he sends his disciples ahead and he tells them exactly what's going to happen, doesn't he? Go into the town, you're going to find this colt, other gospels say the donkey's colt, this, this colt that's never been ridden, which by the way is an Old Testament symbol of being set apart for a sacred purpose. 
And so he tells them all that's going to happen, and it happens just like he says. So again, he's either prearranged his ride in person or supernaturally. It's hard to know which. Doesn't really matter. Either way, what you're looking at is an enacted parable where Jesus is demonstrating what kind of king he is to those who have eyes to see. Or as John tells us in his gospel, for those who look back on this after the cross and resurrection. See, while Luke doesn't make it explicit, Matthew and John make it clear that Jesus ride into Jerusalem on this donkey's colt as a fulfillment of an earlier scripture. And so I invite you to turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, and I'm just going to read verse 9. As I read this verse, consider that this is written somewhere around 500 years before Jesus. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Of course, as often happens in Old Testament prophecy of the coming Messiah, we see Zechariah really sort of push together both Jesus' first and second coming. For if we would have read on, you see in verse 10 and following that this king who's coming is going to cut off all of his enemies and his kingly rule would know no end. But Verse 9 that Matthew and John quote and Luke alludes to focuses on his first coming. And there's four key themes that I I just want to make sure that we see. The first is king, right? That's an important theme. Behold, your king is coming. This is referring to the the long-awaited Messiah, the Messianic king prophesied all the way back in 2 Samuel 7, reiterated in texts like Isaiah 9. We see this theme of righteousness, don't we? Right? Behold, your king is coming righteous. We know the Lord Jesus is most certainly righteous, which is why the cross on Friday is so mind-boggling. We see the theme of salvation. He's the one who's going to bring salvation. What we're going to see as we go, not the kind of salvation the people were looking for, but hey, he's bringing salvation. And then we see the theme of humility. He's humble. He comes riding in on this donkey's colt. And this is all important because passages like this one, certainly passages like I already mentioned, Isaiah 9 and 2 Samuel 7, and there are certainly others. These passages, the the Jews, the people of Israel would have have read, and by this time in history, there's this messianic expectation. The Jewish people were, were looking for their Messiah. They were looking for salvation. They wanted a redeemer. Oh, their focus was off the mark because they were looking for a political savior. They, they were looking for a Messiah like the great King David or his son, King Solomon. And they wanted this Messiah to come riding into town and overthrow the Romans, restore the nation of Israel to the glory that it had back in the days of David. Now, to be sure, King Jesus is in fact in the line of David. He was indeed the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies. But he didn't come as the conquering Messiah they were looking for. Not in his first coming. He'll save that for his second coming when every single one of his enemies are going to put under his feet. But here he came humbly. Here he came to to bring peace 
He came to bring peace with God for sinners. Not by slaying their enemies, but by being slain. And while the people don't understand all of this, they don't understand what kind of Messiah Jesus was. Again, messianic expectations were way up here. They're, they're, they're running high at this time. And so when Jesus comes riding in on this donkey's colt with all that's been going on in the background, don't forget the raising of Lazarus and all of that, this, this, this great multitude comes out to hail him as Messiah, which is what we see going on in verses 36 through 40. Look back at the text. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks, that's their outer garment, on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, this vast multitude comes out to greet him. See, we need to remember that the Passover was one of the Jews' pilgrim feasts. And what that means is that Jews from the whole known world would make their way to Jerusalem for these particular feasts. And so the the town of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas would swell multiple times its normal size. And and so Jesus is coming in, this multitude comes out, many throwing their outer garments down before Jesus so his, his cult could walk over them. That's an act of homage. The other Gospels tell us that others were throwing down palm branches, which had nationalistic symbols by this time. They were waving them as he rode in and throwing them down in front of him. Along with that, we need to see that they quote Psalm 118, which probably doesn't mean a whole lot to most of us, but for a first century Jew, this would have been rife with meaning. See, the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 through 118, was sung each morning by the temple choir at the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the other pilgrim feasts. At Tabernacles, you might recall that they lived in tents, and they carried around these these lulabs, these handheld palm branches with willow and myrtle branches. And in the morning, the choir would sing the Hallel. When you would get to Psalm 118, verse 25, they would, they would all wave their lulabs. I mean, imagine this, like hundreds and thousands of people, perhaps millions, wave their lulabs at the Hosanna, which originally meant the Lord save, but came as a point, over time to be an acclamation of praise that God has indeed saved. The Hallel then, later, by this time, came to be associated with other Jewish feasts as well, including Passover, and thus Matthew and John's Gospels include the fact that Jesus comes into town and the people shout, Hosanna! That is, they shout, the Lord has saved. All four Gospels tell us that they proclaim the next verse, Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Luke makes this all the more clear in how they understood it. Luke says that they shouted, blessed is the king. Blessed is the Messiah, the Davidic king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
See, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the way Luke cites this verse, coupled with the way this psalm was understood in the first century, it is crystal clear that the people come out and they are hailing Jesus as the Messiah. He's the one, and they're sure of it. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I mean, this scene is hard to describe. This would have been a huge crowd that, that comes out. There would have been a buzz in the air, we like to say. People were excited. They were enamored. They're, they're, they're throwing their outer garments down on the ground so he can walk over on this donkey's colt. They're waving palm branches, throwing palm branches out in front of them. They're shouting, perhaps singing, certainly quoting Psalm 118. It would have been an amazing scene. So amazing, mind you, and so startling, quite frankly, that the Jewish leaders took issue with it. They said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Make them stop. Do you see what they're doing? They're, they're hailing you as the Messiah. Tell them to quit. Far from making them stop, he boldly asserts, if they stop, the rocks will cry out. See, all of creation was created to praise the one true living God, to praise the King of kings and Lord of lords. And thus here, at this particular moment, Jesus rides into town and receives indescribable praise, the very praise he very well deserved. Sadly, though, we know that in this instance, this praise didn't continue very long. No, see, most of those in the crowd were not true followers of Jesus. They were really more like fickle fans in it for what they could get out of it. For as you go on in the narrative, it becomes more and more apparent they didn't understand who they were praising. Luke actually tips his hand at this. In verse 37, he tells us that the multitude was praising God and he tells us why. He says they were praising God, look what it says, for all the mighty works they had seen. See, they had seen the healings. If they hadn't seen them, they had heard about them. Again, there's this buzz in the air over this guy. And John tells us something very similar. In John's gospel, remember the triumphal entry happens right after the raising of Lazarus. And John says the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. There, that sign was the raising of Lazarus. So again, there's a buzz in the air. They had heard about Jesus, perhaps maybe saw him. Perhaps some of them were there when he fed the multitudes. If they weren't there, they, they heard about it. They heard about these other miracles. They, they heard some of the teachings. And now they heard about this Lazarus. And they heard the story of Jesus looking in at something that is dead. And he speaks. And something comes into existence. Where else have we seen that? Surely this is the guy they've been waiting for, right? The expected conquering king. If he can raise somebody from the dead, this guy can kill the Romans. In fact, he could kill all their enemies. He could set up his earthly kingdom right there. He could give them everything they wanted. They could be healthy and wealthy and merry for Christmas. They could have their best life now. But they missed it. It's not why he came. Not in this coming. He would come again. Here, though, he came for the cross. Here he came to lay down his life. Here he came not to slay, but to be slain. He came not to destroy their enemies, but to be sacrificed in their place. 
So the people were right that Jesus was the Messiah, but they were dead wrong about the kind of Messiah he would be. And truth be known, they didn't like it. They didn't want a suffering servant. They didn't want a Messiah who would go to the cross and tell them, if you want to be my follower, you need to pick up your cross and follow me. They didn't want a Messiah who would be a curse for them. They wanted a, cru- they, 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 they wanted a conquering king. You could almost hear some of them say, that's not my Messiah. My Messiah is a conquering king. Which leads to our next passage I want to look at and gives insight as to why, no doubt, many of those who yelled Hosanna on Sunday, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, would turn and shout crucify by Friday. Flip over to chapter 23. I won't read all of this, but I'm going to read a few of these verses. Context here is Jesus has now been arrested. He's been mocked. He's been beaten. He stood before the Sanhedrin and now taken to Pilate. Starting in verses 1 through 4. Then the whole company of them, there that's probably referring to the Sanhedrin, there the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You've said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, so there's the crowds, chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Drop down to verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. By the way, Matthew, parallel passage, Matthew 27. Matthew tells us that the Jewish leaders won over the crowds, right? They they, they won over the crowds trying to argue that Jesus was in fact a, a fraud. So then drop down to verses 18 to 25. But they all, now this is everybody, they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, and he delivered Jesus over to their will. So the question for us this morning is, how? Why? How can a crowd of people be so fickle? How how, how can they love him one day and want him dead the next? And I think the answer is a little frightening if we're honest with ourselves. See, the answer is, they didn't worship him for who he claimed to be. They worshiped him for who they wanted him to be. A common refrain I have come to loathe as a pastor is, my Jesus. My Jesus, my Jesus would never do X, Y, and Z. My Jesus only does A, B, and C. All they're doing is they're describing themselves, quite frankly. So we need to spend a few minutes digging into the question, who is Jesus? Who is this king who comes in the name of the Lord? 
Again, they were writing what they said, but who is he really compared to who they were looking for? That's the issue. Who has Luke shown Jesus to be throughout this gospel? What did Jesus teach? What did his actions demonstrate? And of course, here we have time only to scratch the surface, but even in so doing, we'll see very clearly where the Jews went wrong, and quite frankly, where so many so-called Christians today follow their example. And just consider some of the category headings I have on your outline under the question, who is this king who comes in the name of the Lord? If we were to read through the entirety of the Gospel of Luke, we would see, for example, that Jesus was completely sinless. We see this is a big picture item throughout all of the Gospels and that we never see him sin. But in Luke 4, you have this very important passage. There you see the temptation of Jesus. There you see Jesus led out into the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil, and he does not fall into sin. And this is vital. Think about what the inspired writer is showing us. We've been studying the book of Genesis together, and we've seen how Adam and Eve were tempted and, and fell headlong into sin. Here Jesus is put before us as the second Adam who comes and succeeds where Adam and Eve failed. He's the perfect, spotless, sinless one who would rescue us from Adam's curse. Hebrews 4.15 says it like this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted in every single way, just like you are. You've experienced no temptation that he didn't. But, but he was sinless. He was spotless. He was perfect. And yet, while sinless, spotless, perfect, we also see in the Gospels that Jesus was a friend of sinners. In Luke 7.34, Jesus points out the duplicity of the Jewish leaders. He said, John the Baptist came neither eating or drinking. And yet you say, he's got a demon. Son of man came eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And it's true. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Think about some of the people Jesus spent time with. Tax collectors? I mean, these guys were real scoundrels. This scum of the earth kind of folks. How about prostitutes? Or, or, or the woman at the well, right? She was just a run-of-the-mill promiscuous woman. In Luke 15, verses 1 through 2, we read, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. That he did. That he did indeed. Now, we do need to be careful here. For while he was indeed a friend of sinners, his friendship was never for the purpose of just hanging out and condoning what they were doing. No, Jesus gladly spent time with sinners who were open to listening to his message. See, Jesus was, is, and always will be on mission. And so the next heading is this. Jesus is the bringer of salvation to all kinds of people. And we see that right at the very beginning of this gospel. Mary and Joseph present baby Jesus at the temple, and a man named Simeon prophesies over him, saying, quote, Lord, 
Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples. Listen to what he says. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. See, right at the very beginning of the gospel, it's clear Jesus came to save people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's glorious promise to Abraham that one from his line would be a blessing to every single family on the earth, all the different people groups, all different types of people. But see, this is the nub of some of the struggles the Jewish leaders had with Jesus, isn't it? They had no problem with saying the Messiah was for the glory of the people of Israel. They'd say yes and amen, that's good. But they didn't like the fact that he's a light to the Gentiles. In fact, it wasn't just the Gentiles that the Jewish leaders hated. There seemed to be a number of categories of people that they had singled out. I mean, how about the calling of Levi, tax collector? And after Jesus calls him to come be one of the disciples, we read, In Luke 5.30, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at this, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus looked at them and said, what? He said, I didn't come to call the righteous. His point is, I didn't come to call those who are righteous in their own eyes. But I I came to call sinners to repentance. And we could go on and on here. We think of the sinful woman in chapter 7. Almost certainly a woman in sexual sin. Uh, they're, they're at this guy's house, this Pharisee named Simon. And Simon is indignant, if you remember that text, that, that Jesus allows this woman to wash his feet. He, he condemns Jesus in his own heart, saying, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus makes it clear by way of a parable that those who have sinned much which is all of us. The Pharisees just didn't understand that. Those who have sinned much, love much. And he shows how that Pharisee is actually lost, and she is actually saved. Now, we've already made it clear that Jesus didn't come to embrace a sinful lifestyle. He loved the sinner, yes, but hates the sin. In fact, we must always be clear, sin, our sin, is why Good Friday. It's why Jesus had to come and die. So we can say that while Jesus is a friend of sinners who came to save all kinds of people, we can also say that he hates sin. And we see his hatred for sin at many places, but perhaps the clearest was his God-honoring, righteous anger at sin when he cleansed the temple, right? The Jewish leaders were making a marketplace out of the temple, the unique place God met with his people. And so Jesus condemns their actions He he flips over the money tables, drove the animals out. Make no bones about it. While Jesus loves the sinner, he does indeed hate our sin. Remember, Jesus is perfectly righteous. And as the righteous one, another key point is that Jesus was a teacher of righteousness, regardless of who he offended. And we see this all over the place too. We've already alluded to several texts where Jesus teaches righteousness, and the Jewish leaders found it remarkably offensive. Luke 11 is a great example of this. Here Jesus says directly to the Pharisees, he says, woe to you, Pharisees, you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, you're like unmarked graves. 
people walk over him without even knowing. The text says, and I, and I love this, the, the lawyers chime in and they're like, yo, Jesus, man, some of the stuff you're saying insults us too. And Jesus, being the equal opportunity offender, goes on to the lawyers and says, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You didn't enter yourselves, and you hinder those who are entering. As you might imagine, the text tells us that after that, they plotted with how they might do away with him. So, so Jesus' message wasn't always popular nor was it easy. No, Jesus makes it clear throughout the Gospels that he's Lord, he's King, and he calls his followers to follow him unconditionally. So, for example, in Luke 9, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, take up his own instrument of death, and follow me. For whoever would save his life, now I take that to mean whoever would try to claim Jesus but keep his life the way that it was before he comes to faith, whoever would save his life he says, lose it. But whoever loses his life dies to self. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. See, Jesus calls his followers to die to self he calls us to follow him unconditionally. And of course, he could do this because he was not only fully man, but he's also fully God. It was appropriate for Jesus to call us to completely surrender to him as king because he was and is the divine son of God spoken of in the Old Testament. Here we might think of texts like Isaiah 9. Points back to 2 Samuel 7. In Isaiah 9, that we often quote around Christmas, we see this promise of a divine son who would come and set up a forever kingdom. Here we read, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. So this son is Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. In Luke 1.35, the angel Gabriel tells Mary, it's Jesus, he says, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus is the divine son. But herein lies another problem. Many of the Jews picked up on texts like Isaiah 9, right? How could you not? It's spectacular. Son of God's going to set up a kingdom. There's going to be shalom, peace that the Jews haven't experienced since King Solomon. All right. But see, they grabbed hold of a text that they liked, but they didn't grab hold of other passages like Isaiah 53. That makes it equally clear that this coming one would be God's servant, his suffering servant. He would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah says he would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah tells us all of us like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. See, Jesus did come to set up his kingdom, but not through the death of Rome, but in and through his own death. 
And his kingdom would not be the earthly Davidic kingdom part two. It is, as Isaiah prophesied, an eternal kingdom, which was not as exciting to them as an immediate physical kingdom. And all of this leads back to why so many people could shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord on Sunday and crucify by Friday. To put it bluntly, they wanted a Messiah made up in their own image. Again, they were looking for a conquering king, not a suffering servant. They wanted a Messiah who would overthrow Rome, give them prosperity in this life, not one who would suffer and die and then say, follow him in my footsteps. The Jewish leaders clearly wanted a Messiah who would fit into their system of rules and regulations. They had it all figured out. Do good according to our standards, good things will happen. Be like us, it's all good. In other words, they wanted a Messiah who would come and further their kingdom. This is, this is nasty stuff. And if you think I'm reading too much into this, consider John 11, 45 through 53. This is the passage that comes right after the raising of Lazarus. And here we read that after that miracle, after that miracle, the Jewish leaders get together and here's what they say. This is a quote from the text. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, for the Jewish leaders anyway, and now I'm being careful to distinguish at this point between the Jewish leaders and the rest of the people. The Jewish leaders hated Jesus because he was threatening their way of life. If he was who he claimed to be, there'd be no more use for them. Right? We see the humility of John the Baptist. He recognized who he was, and he says, he must increase, I must decrease, but not these guys. If Jesus was who it looked like, they would go from being big dogs to small dogs in the blink of an eye. And they weren't having it. For all involved, whether the Jewish leaders or the multitudes, their failure was wanting and demanding a Messiah made up in their own image. They wanted a Messiah to give them what they wanted, even though what they wanted might be a little bit different from person to person. The point is, it was all about the great I. It was all about them. And thus we see them move seamlessly from Hosanna to crucify. What changed? Well, it was all a matter of perspective for the multitude anyway. The leaders had already determined to kill Jesus by that time. But for the crowd on Sunday, they, they, they seem to have gotten swept up in the, in the nationalistic zeal, right? They thought this guy was the guy who was going to make Jerusalem great again. This is the guy who could come and give them an earthly kingdom, peace and prosperity in this life, your best life now. But by Friday, it was clear he's not that kind of Messiah, which should indeed lead us to ask the ever-important question, who do we say he is? Who's Jesus to you? What does it look like to follow him? And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, can I just speak to you for a moment first? I want to really plead with you. We, we live in a culture that talks a lot about Jesus, a lot about Jesus. I go into stores and it's got shirts that you can buy about Jesus and everybody's Facebook page says they follow Jesus. But I want to plead with you to Look at what the Scripture says. The Scriptures teach us about who Jesus is. The perfect 
spotless, sinless one I described earlier. Fully God, fully man, who humbled himself because we needed a Savior. He came and, and, and lived the perfect life we couldn't live, and he went to the cross that we'll talk a lot about this Friday. Come join us. He went to the cross to bear the punishment we deserve to bear so that any and all who call out to Jesus, who truly believe in him, can be saved from the wrath of God we all deserve. Have right standing with God, relationship with God, fellowship with God that begins now and goes for all eternity. And friend, I would plead with you, look to Christ even today. What about for those of us who are already trusting in Christ? Does this apply to us? I think we would all understand the fickleness of our own heart and say, absolutely. And there's a hundred things we could say and I'm really out of time, but I want to end with three ways as we are being formed more and more into the image of Christ, so Colossians 3, three ways following Jesus should cause us to continue to grow in His likeness that flows right from this. First, first, we want to grow in living for His kingdom. We're all really good. I don't care if you're in ministry or what your job is, we're all really good at building a kingdom to ourselves, right? And so, this is a call to focus on His kingdom, my kingdom be damned. And this is an area where I think we're all constantly challenged, because our sin nature constantly drives back to me, me, me. What about me, right? How often do you say that in your head? What about me? Nobody's thinking about me. What's going on? We need to ask ourselves, whose kingdom am I focusing on? Here's just a couple of examples. Think about this. When you're, when you're kids, there's a lot of young kids in our church. It's great. Praise God for that, right? A lot of young kids in our church. When your kids are arguing with one another, for example, and you get angry, the question would be, are you angry because they're offending a holy God in their sin? Or are you angry because they're offending you? They're encroaching on your kingdom of peace, Right? What about when we're anxious about something? Does our anxiety, does our anxiousness pertain to Jesus' kingdom? Like Paul who says he's anxious for the churches he planted. He just wants to see them thrive so much. Or is it typically we get anxious because our kingdom is starting to slip out of our grip, right? And I just keep trying to squeeze it tighter and tighter. And the tighter I squeeze it, the slipperier it gets. Whose kingdom am I consistently living for? It's a question we must ask ourselves daily, probably hourly. It's a question we want to remind each other of, challenge each other on. Second, Jesus came to save sinners like us. We like to say that around this church, trying to be theologically correct, right? He came to save sinners like us. But do we mean it how it could also come off? He came to save sinners who are actually like us. In other words, as we're being conformed into the image of who Jesus really is, are we growing and reaching out to all kinds of people like our king did? Or do we tend to focus on folks who by and large are like us? Another way of doing self-evaluation here is to consider your own internal response as you interact with people who are different than you, right? How, how do you respond inside even though people might not see it? Take on a stock here. I mean, do a little personal inventory test while we're sitting here. What's your internal response 
and probably actions that follow when you see people who are very different than you. I don't know, you know, maybe somebody's got a hairstyle that you think, ah, you know. What's your response there? What about somebody who dresses in a way that you deem inappropriate? I'm not going to define what that is because you probably deem something inappropriate differently than I do. But you see that and you're like, no, that's totally inappropriate. What's your heart inclination toward them? What about somebody who's outspoken for, oh, a political party that might be different than yours? Do they just get the hand? Are they cut off right then and there? How about two dudes who are holding hands? You know, where does your heart go? Do you have a problem with talking to people that are different than you? Do you have a problem being a friend with someone different than you? Loving someone different than you? If so, and I think we all do to varying degrees, and to the degree to which this is true, church, we need to repent. We need to recognize in those instances we're acting far more like the Pharisees who fussed at Jesus for being a friend of sinners than we are King Jesus who condemned their attitude toward the lost. Finally, what about the idea of Jesus as a conquering king? He will come again. We know this. He will conquer all of his enemies and put them under his feet. And we'll be with him for all eternity in the new heaven and new earth where everything will be perfect. But that's not now. That's later. We don't know when, but it's not now. We're talking about the already and the not yet. We're not to the not yet yet. In his first coming, remember he came as a suffering servant. And he tells us to follow his lead. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. We say that as though it's sort of cute and quaint. Pick up your cross and follow me. It's like saying, pick up your electric chair and let's go. Right? Pick up your lethal injection needle. Pick up your reminder of death, your daily reminder of death, dying to self, and come follow me. Struggle on. Serve others. Put the needs of those sitting around you above your own. How are we doing here? I think we struggle more than we give ourselves credit. We said last week that all of us have more prosperity gospel baggage than we care to admit. We, we still struggle, don't we, with being more excited about Jesus when things are going our way when they're not. We're more inclined to question our faith when things aren't going our way. We're super comfortable saying, thank you, Jesus, for the new job, the new house, the whatever. A little less comfortable saying, thank you, Jesus, for losing my job today. You've just given me an opportunity to lean into you for help in a way that I haven't had to do in a while. Thank you, Lord, for your willingness to grow my faith because eternity is more important to you than today. Thank you. Brothers and sisters, I'm out of time, but I point these things out because I know the fickleness of my own heart, and I trust that you're in the same boat that I'm in. And King Jesus came on the most amazing rescue mission to save sinners like us, and we want to submit our lives to him we want to grow in worshiping Him for who He really is, not for what He can give us. We need to be sure we're clear. Jesus is the sinless one. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is the bringer of salvation to all kinds of people. Jesus is a hater of sin, a teacher of righteousness, regardless of who's offended, even us. He's the Lord who calls people to follow Him unconditionally. He is the Son of God who came as a suffering servant. Let us follow this Jesus without question.
without reservation. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. We thank you for the way that by the work of your spirit, you work in our lives to convict us of sin, lead us to repentance, build us up when we're struggling. Lord, I just thank you that you are completing the work that you have begun in the lives of each and every believer here. And Lord, as we turn our attention now to the Lord's table, oh, Father, I pray that you would continue to have your way with us, and we thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.